Well, I want to welcome everyone to another episode of Doctor in the House. Today is the fifth anniversary of President Trump signing the Right to Try Act. Uh, this was a big deal during the at the time of the bill signing. The uh, old executive office building was filled with patients who were looking forward to being able to access treatments that previously had been denied to them. In fact, the president had said during his State of the Union address that it wasn't right that patients with severe illnesses had to travel from country to country trying to find a, a treatment for their disease when the treatment had been developed and was unavailable to them in the United States of America. So it was a big deal the day that bill was signed. And I'll have to acknowledge that the principal reason that the bill got signed into law was because of the efforts of Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. And I'm very fortunate to have Senator Johnson with me here today on this episode of, of, of Doctor in the House. And Senator Johnson, let me just ask you, what was it that caused you to become interested in the whole concept of right to try? Well, first of all, Congressman Doctor, I think you probably prefer the, the latter title. It holds uh, a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I, I appreciate you being a doctor. Uh, my first child, my daughter Kara, was, was born with transfers of the great arteries. So uh, first day of life, a, a wonderful man, Dr. John Thomas, came in and, and saved her life with a balloon septostomy. And then eight months later, when her heart's the size of a small plum, they reconstructed the upper chain of her heart. So her heart operates backwards, but she just turned 40. So I've, I have a great reverence for doctors. So th thank you for being one. Yes, sir. And th thank you for serving your country and being a champion of uh, this bill on, on the House side. But what got me uh, committed to championing on the Senate side was I, I met with a, a young mom, uh, Trickett Wendler, and uh, she had ALS. Yes, sir. And she came in. I just probably met with the Goldwater Institute maybe three or four weeks before that. I'd always been in favor of Right to Try. I mean, I'm, I ran a platform of freedom. What a concept, right? And uh, so the proximity of meeting with Goldwater, and of course, they were they were trying to push Right to Try on a state-by-state -state basis. They wanted to get enough states. Yes. And again, this is a smart strategy. They got <clears throat> enough states passing it and then basically teeing it up for, for a federal law. And... Uh, so I mentioned to Trickett, I said, you know, I'm a big supporter of Right to Try, and, and uh, tears started streaming on our cheeks. And that's that was the moment I said, okay, I'm going to champion this in the U.S. Senate. Well, absolutely, and thank goodness you did. And uh, you got it passed in conjunction with an FDA reauthorization that August, and then a mere <laughs> 10 or 11 months later, which is rapid for Washington time, uh, we were at the bill signing uh, in the old executive office building down on the on the White House complex, it was uh, you got it passed over on the Senate side, and I I don't know if anyone over here on the House side thought that it was going to happen, but when it did, then of course we had to re-engage. Uh, uh, I'm on the Committee on Energy and Commerce. This is within our jurisdiction, and we had to re-engage and basically pass your bill. Uh, because nothing else was going to be right. satisfactory, and I know there's some some back and forth, but I'm glad you stuck. I'm glad you stuck to your principles, and we got a good bill passed. And you know, I just have to tell you, every time uh, President Trump stands up and starts talking about healthcare, he almost immediately goes to right to try because it was such a big deal. And in that day in that auditorium, the uh, the sense of relief from the patients who were in that room who had been waiting for that day, uh, it was palpable, wasn't it? 
Well, it was, um, but let's get down the weeds a little bit in terms of how this was passed, because I think it's instructive in terms of what we need to do moving forward in the future. Uh, the only reason I got it passed in the Senate was because we had that uh, FDA user fee bill. Yes. It was it was a must-pass piece of legislation. I remember. Nobody thought that there'd be any problems getting it through, but that was my opportunity. Uh, no committee was going to take it up. Uh, so when I objected to bring that thing up to the floor for quick unanimous consent passage, uh, that got people's attention. And all of a sudden, I've got uh, Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray, the, the chairman and ranking member of, right. of the uh, help committee, to start talking to me. And we started doing negotiations. We also brought Big Pharma in. Now, Big Pharma... Uh, we accommodated some of their concerns. I understand they got legitimate concerns. Sure. And because we accommodated their language, said, well, we're not going to support this, but we're not going to sabotage it. And then I would argue they came over to the House here and basically sabotaged it because what ended up happening in the House is it became a partisan issue. We passed it by unanimous consent in the Senate. Correct. Okay. But all of a sudden, it was, it was a partisan issue over here. And I know you guys, because you wanted to, write pass, wanted to pass right to try, you passed your version, but... As you're aware, and President Trump became aware, there was no way we we're going to be able to take it up Correct. In, in the Senate. So the only way to done. pass right to try was to pass the Senate version, and you folks fortunately did that. But, but it just shows you the power of Big Pharma, because they, they said they weren't going to sabotage it, but somehow I just have a feeling that they maneuvered things in the House, and they came pretty close to sabotaging it. We, we, uh, we resisted doing the right thing for a period of time. I was always with you, just just for the record. Oh, I know. I know you were. <laughs> but it, and I can still remember those debates on the, on the floor. Um, in fact, I was digging around through my archives, and interestingly enough, there was a, a, a Dallas lawyer who uh, died at uh, 61 years of age from multiple myeloma, and in his last month of life, Speaker Pelosi actually interceded on his behalf to get him access to a, a drug that was under investigation for treating multiple myeloma. Uh, the drug company obviously does not want anything that's going to deflect from their ability to get their drug approved for the, for the primary purpose. But it always struck me as somewhat unfair that someone would have access to the, the highest levels of, of leadership in the House of Representatives and be able to get access to this medicine where the average person would not have the availability of doing that. Right. So without mentioning any other names other than, than Speaker Pelosi, I mean, that was, that was one of the things that sort of drove me in this discussion that, hey, if it was right in 2008 when, when, when this unfortunate individual had his, his run-in with multiple myeloma, and the Speaker of the House was able to get him access to a drug that no one else in the country would have had access to. Uh, we ought to be we ought to be listening when people sure. are people are in tough conditions and they're they're asking for help. But as you well know, right to try does not guarantee that there's going to be a cure. Uh, what right to try does is gives patients hope and gives them a little more freedom. Uh, you ought to at that point in time when there's no other options. I mean, you, you don't qualify for clinical trial, you're terminal. You have no place else to turn. Right to try is there for you and your doctor to try something. And that ought to be your right as an American. And that's what right to try does. But it's just a first step. It's, it's not 
It's not the panacea. Right. Uh, I, I would argue, and I have introduced a piece of legislation now called right to treat. Uh, shouldn't be necessary uh, because doctors have off-label prescription rights. But we saw of during COVID, we, we saw during COVID that uh, fully FDA-approved drugs that were have been safe for years, actually a Nobel Prize award-winning uh, drug, uh, all of a sudden was not available to doctors. That's just wrong. So I think we uh, probably need to pass something called right to treat to complement right to try. Well, look, I'll, uh, I don't know who, who you've got working on that, but we'll be happy to take it up on the House side because that is an important concept. And of course, any physician colleague would argue that, hey, any FDA-approved drug, I can use off-label for whatever purpose I, I see fit. And we as doctors hold that, uh, I mean, that's, that's sacrosanct to us. But yes, you're quite correct. Uh, we came through a time not just a few months ago where authorities were used to stop to interfere with that process. And again, that's, uh, that's just pretty dangerous if we start interfering with, with, with clinical judgment. I'll also share with you that as a result of having that signing ceremony, uh, a couple came in to see me in my office back in the district shortly after that. They weren't constituents, but they had a son who unfortunately had my, um, <clears throat> muscular dystrophy. And they saw the uh, um, the bill signing. It was carried on on television, I guess. And they came in to thank me because their son had been in a clinical trial with a new medication. The FDA advisory board said, no, there's not enough benefit here. But their observation was this helped our son a lot. And if we stop now, he's going to lose what he has gained. So they were very excited about right to try and, and the ability to pursue what otherwise would not be available to them because the FDA had said, no, this, this is not going to work enough for us to put a stamp of approval on it. So it just, it underscored for me the power of right to try. Again, they weren't constituents, but they were in my, my part of the state. And it was, uh, it was a pretty powerful, uh, pretty powerful meeting that we had. Now, I've heard, uh, you know, during COVID, there was a, a drug, uh, a Viptadil. Uh, the trade name was ISAMI. Uh, one hospital in Texas, I think it was in Houston, uh, I, I talked to the doctor who treated, I think she said 19 patients. That's off the top of my head. I think and she said 16 patients walked out. They, they, these are terminal yes. cases. They, they were going to die. They were writing the last will and testament. And I asked the doctor, I said, well, so what, what extent of lung damage? I mean, what, you know, how, how did they leave the hospital? And she said, no, Sandra, these people were healed. And uh, so that's just one example. I've, I've talked to other doctors who are involved in, uh, you know, working with the FDA, different medical research. They're using it for different purposes. So, again, not necessarily a panacea, but it, do, it does provide that hope. But it, it, it's the freedom aspect of this. I mean, why, why shouldn't Americans have the freedom to make these choices? Uh, in, it's their life. Yeah. I had a similar experience with Sysami in, in a hospital just outside of my district, and they invited me to come and talk to them one afternoon. And the the doctor who, who ran the ICU, again, similar story, similar numbers to what you just reported. And at the time, I guess this was February of last year, uh, they were told by the FDA that, uh, well, we won't get around to looking at an emergency use authorization until September or October. <laughs> and in the meantime, I mean, these are patients who write. They're in the ICU. They're on ventilatory support. We all know that the uh, 
the survivability of that part of, of a COVID infection is pretty low. And yet they were getting some, what I would say would be miraculous saves with no subsequent sequelae. They didn't go home on high, high flow oxygen. They went home and they were better. And the only way that these patients got the medication was the manufacturer agreed to make it available on a right to try type of basis. It, that, you know, means the hospital was absorbing a lot of the expense. Uh, the pharmaceutical manufacturer was not really receiving what they would consider appropriate compensation. But at the same time, it was the right thing to do for these patients. And, you know, God bless this doctor. She stepped up and, and did the right thing. Uh, and I know, uh, I, I know there are others who've had similar experiences with that drug. And I, I'll just tell you, I mean, I, we, we went right to the Democrats were in charge of the House at, back then. Uh, Dr. Harris and I went to the top of the Democratic leadership and said, help us with the FDA. Help us get them to understand this. This should be looked at. And we just drew a blank. And so it was a, a bureaucratic dead end. But fortunately, those patients who did have the availability because of the right to try, because of your, your bill that you got signed into law, those patients were saved. Yeah, unfortunately, it's too few. Um, but that, that's what we need to address. I mean, we need – now, I've been fairly critical of the FDA, of the uh, CDC, of the NIH during, during the pandemic. I think, I think our response has been a miserable failure. Uh, but we do need a federal agency that is in charge of food and drug safety. Um, and I understand when you're in charge of safety, you, you're going to be pretty risk averse, which is sure. why you need to, with full consent, fully informed consent, uh, allow patients to make that choice. You know, we also need a CDC that is in charge of gathering uh, openly and honestly and transparently information, then disseminating this the exact same way. Uh, that hasn't been the case with this CDC either. So the, from my standpoint, COVID exposed an awful lot of problems. You know, federal health agencies, the, the capture of, of those agencies by big pharma, as well as the capture of the media by big pharma, all those, you know, billions of dollars of ads and you know, advertising drugs that uh, they always have to list just might kill you. Uh, so it's not, not a real convincing sales pitch. Those advertising dollars are, are meant to capture the narrative, to, to capture the media. And th these are things we need to look at in Congress. We sure do. And, uh, um, you know, the the whole discussion of the CDC and, and the FDA and the NIH in the post-COVID environment is a much longer discussion. But I, I certainly agree with you that those those agencies now have an enormous problem ahead of them in reestablishing credibility. They've damaged, I mean, nobody else did it to them. They did it to themselves. It wasn't your criticism or my criticism or any other uh members' criticism or senators' criticism, they did it to themselves by being provably and consistently wrong and then never being willing to acknowledge that the world had shifted under their feet. Oh, my gosh, it was a novel virus. Who could know everything about it from the get-go? And yet they want to present themselves as if they did. And, you you know, the only way to survive it is to do exactly what they say until they change what they say later on. I didn't mean to go down there. We do have to, you know, there is a longer discussion about the CDC for for the future. But, um, you know, I think I, I guess I just finish up by asking you, what do you see as the what do you see as the next steps, the next the, the next pathways that we should follow in this realm? Well, for, first, 
to add on to what you said, you know, trust is something someone gives to you. And I think the American public had given our federal health agencies trust, and we hoped that that trust would be rewarded, uh, but they violated that trust, and trust is something very difficult uh, when, when you lose it uh, to, to gain it back. So that, that's something we, we need to work on. Uh, it's, it's important that the American public have yes. federal health agencies that are worthy <clears throat> of our trust, and we want to be able to trust them. We want to be able to trust our medical establishment. So the only way you reestablish that trust is by exposing the truth. You can't bury it. You can't hide it. You can't run away from it. You've got to take a look. Okay, well, this is what happened. Let's be open and let's be transparent about it. This is what, these are the mistakes that were made. These are the lies that were told. That This is what we weren't transparent about. And that we can do through congressional hearings. I know you've got a committee in the House that are looking at yes. these things. And I tell you, I, I saw the testimony. I, I wish I knew the, the woman's name from NIH. Um, I was more than pleasantly surprised at the honesty that she talked about, saying that we, we just weren't following the science. We didn't follow the science on, on school closures. We didn't follow the science on natural immunity. Uh, we, we had our narrative. We had you know, our response in place, and you know, we weren't going to let the facts or the truth get in the way. And so it's that type of openness and transparency and honesty that uh, we're going to need the heads of the FDA, the CDC, not not just somebody, you know, but, but the fact that, uh, you know, Chairman Westrup got uh, this uh, woman to testify and she testified honestly, there's a very good first start, but it's, it's about the truth. Well, it absolutely is. And, you know, have some humility when you're going into a situation that nobody's ever been in before. And you may not get it right on your first guess, and you may have to come back and revisit what you told people. You know, one thing, again, I'm not a doctor like you, I'm not a medical researcher, but I've been connected to a global network of eminently qualified doctors and researchers that just had a different approach and different opinion on how we should handle this. And by the way, isn't that, we were always told about medicine, always get a second opinion. Yeah. Um, but one thing I've learned in the email groups is, I've always known this, this is true about life. I mean, what we don't know so vastly exceeds what we do. And you just talked about, you know, a little more humility, a little more modesty. That's let's be humble from the standpoint that, you know, this marvel of creation is something that is a big mystery. And there literally is much more that we don't know. Be humble about that. Seek greater wisdom. Uh, That's a big lesson, I think, that we should should take away from uh, the pandemic. And in the meantime, we've got to help those agencies reestablish their credibility, and we can only do that by demanding complete transparency from them going forward. And it's a, you know, it's, it's tough job that they had through the pandemic, but doggone it, if conditions change you around you, be upfront. I mean, I don't know how many times I saw the CDC director go on uh, um, Brett Baer on. Fox News in the evening, and and basically it was a proclamation. It wasn't an acknowledgement. Yeah, well, the science has changed underneath us, but that's what is so necessary. People need to hear that, and they were they were anxious to hear that. And instead, what they got was this is the way you must do it, and there is no there's no alteration from what we've already prescribed. Yeah, you know, we 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 all realized early on that nobody knew what this virus was and how deadly it might be and what our response ought to be. So the American public uh, would have been, I think actually have been very forgiving of 
people with the awesome responsibility of making very tough decisions with very limited information. I think where you start losing that forgiveness is when in the face of other evidence, you stubbornly hung on and were more dictatorial in your pronouncements and, and your judgments. You just weren't willing to change with, with the science. And that's really what that uh, witness from NIH was talking about. Just They declared themselves the science and then they refused to follow it. Which, of course, is what scientific investigation has always been about. You test your hypothesis, and if you found out you went down the wrong trail, you double back and try another one. And you, be, you always be skeptical. And record your results okay. so you don't make the same mistake twice. Well, listen, Senator Johnson, I can't thank you enough for coming in to, uh, to talk about this important anniversary for the Right to Try Act. It was indeed a milestone in the care of America's patients and the furtherance of science and, and American medical knowledge. So thank you very much for what you did to make this a reality. And uh, we'll look forward to talking again real soon. Well, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being a doctor. And thanks for helping Shepard right to try through the house. We needed you. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. And we'll cue the dramatic music. This uh, is available any place you get your podcasts. And be sure to listen to all of the valuable podcasts that are available at that site.